We are in uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 13. We'll finish chapter 13 this morning. What began this chapter was Jesus finishing his public ministry, his three years of public ministry. At the temple during the Passover, he cleansed the temple and then for a few days taught about the kingdom, debated with the religious leaders, and answered all their questions, and they could not answer his questions. And his public ministry was complete, and he knew he would soon be celebrating the Passover with his disciples. He would be arrested, tried, and crucified in just a couple days. As he was returning back to a house in Bethany where he was staying, they stopped on the Mount of Olives opposite the Temple Mount. And we read in Mark's Gospel that four disciples asked him about the last days. What it'll be like, when it will it happen, what will be the signs that it's happening. And so we took a tour of all the different views of the Bible about what the last days will be like. And we determined biblically that Jesus will return and set up a thousand-year literal kingdom here on earth with all of his enemies defeated, reign for a thousand years here on earth. The seven years just prior to that thousand-year reign is called the tribulation period. The last three and a half years of that seven years the Great Tribulation. As we heard this morning about persecution in North Korea, and you can read about the persecuted church around the globe, no matter how ugly and how bad and how horrific persecution's been through the ages, it will pale in comparison to the Tribulation period. Jesus said in Mark 13, uh, let me read it specifically. It says, Oh, anyone sees it before I do, shout it out. Aha, verse 19. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. So that'll be the worst the earth has ever seen during that seven years. Famines, earthquakes, plagues, wars, rumors of wars, great persecution. Let me describe what the world is going to look like just before Jesus returns. Believe that the scriptures teach that the church will be removed from the earth. We call that the rapture. And we said some Christians, evangelicals, believe that will happen before the tribulation. Some believe it happens somewhere in the midway point, And some believe it happens at the end of the tribulation. I think the scriptures teach that the church will be removed before, before the tribulation begins. If that is the case, or even if it happens in the middle of the tribulation, imagine a world with no Christians. Now, to the ACLU, that sounds great. But careful what one wishes for. A world without 
the love of Christ expressed through Spirit-filled believers. A world without compassion and mercy. A world without uh, hospitals, orphanages, without relief organizations. Oh yes, there's secular ones, but it was the Christian church that started the idea and really makes up for the bulk of all mercy, mercy ministries and compassion industries. Imagine all of that being removed. What kind of world that would be like. I think it's a lot like what we just heard about North Korea. There's a world without visible testimony of the Christian church, though a lot of secret believers. Also, during the tribulation time, just before Christ returns, we read in Revelation that the judgment of God begins to be unleashed. Seven seal judgments. These seals are broken on the scroll, and seven seal judgments happen. And then seven trumpet judgments. Before each one, a trumpet sounds. And each of the judgments gets progressively worse. It is a terrible time on earth why it's called the tribulation. You think life is hard now, you ain't seen nothing. Wars and rumors of wars increase. You think you can't watch the news today without hearing about wars or rumors of wars. The world, secular humanism, has said that through evolution, man is getting better, he's getting wiser, more sophisticated. We're just getting more sophisticated in how we kill one another. The 1900s saw the slaughter of man like the world has never seen. And the pace we're on in the new century is going to make the 1900s look like child's play. Oh, come Lord Jesus, I hope we don't have to endure another hundred years of this kind of world. I know we've, like... Dan said, we have our bubbles, we have our pockets of relative peace and prosperity. And when we live in this bubble, sometimes the little things in life can seem like persecution. That is not the kind of persecution God talks about. Yes, believers suffer. All, all people suffer because of the fall. We suffer hardship, illness, um, Sometimes famine, drought, like we're in now, but last time I turned on my tap, water came out. But there are places in the world that we know where there isn't clean drinking water. Paul called all these sufferings momentary light affliction compared to the glories of heaven. And he got beaten almost weekly in the synagogues, and he called that momentary light affliction. Shame on us who complain about it's too hot or it's too cold or whatever, you know. I got passed over for a raise, yada, yada, yada. They preempted my soap opera for the World Cup. I don't know. what, Whatever it is that is bothering you, it is nothing. It's a disgrace and a dishonor to our brothers and sisters around the world who suffer real persecution. As a young believer, I was passed over for a, a state job as a teacher, uh, I'm pretty sure, because when they asked, who's your hero, I said, Jesus. And the job was all but mine. And then, suddenly, I didn't get a call back. I was the only applicant, and the only qualified applicant, 
And I finally called them back, and they, they said, oh, we don't know what happened. Nobody ever doesn't make it past that round of interviews. What did you say? And I'm, I don't know, but I, I realized, oh, okay, they don't want to work with one of those, you know, fools for Christ. So is that persecution? Mildly, I think God had a better job for me. Uh, shortly thereafter, I ended up going to seminary and... Here we are, you know, 15 years later, 12 years later. So, is that persecution? A little bit. Nothing like what is going to happen during the Great Tribulation. In the midst of all this chaos, the world is going to cry out for somebody to put a stop to it. And whenever there's chaos and anarchy, people will settle for fascism. They'll give all the power, they'll relinquish their guns their weapons, they'll allow laws, very oppressive laws to be passed just for a little personal peace and a little bit of affluence. As long as I can still have my annual pass to the amusement park, you can do whatever you want, you know, whatever it is. And before you know it, you have a fascist dictator and that's what Antichrist will be the dictator to end all dictatorships. And you're not going to notice that he's Antichrist. It's not like he's going to wear a hat or an evil mask, you know, some kind of dark cloak. He's going to um, rise from a revived Roman Empire. We know from the book of Daniel we looked at last week. People said, well, how can that be? You know, don't think Roman Empire thousands of years ago. Think uh, Europe. And Europe has come back together as the European Union. Um, this person will rise up out of that political system. He'll bring relative stability to the world. He'll bring economic stability. You'll have to sign up if you want to buy, sell, and trade. The Revelation calls it the mark of the beast. There will be some kind of of Mark that'll let everyone know you're part of the world system. Maybe we'll all need a certain kind of Visa card or a microchip. Who knows? It's kind of fun to, to guess, but I don't think we're supposed to spend our Christian life uh, getting too caught up in the details. Uh, it's going to happen. It's happening as we speak. Nothing will be able to put a stop to it, God has sovereignly said it's going to happen, and we see the events unfolding before our eyes. It brings uh, more power to my faith. Instead of fear, it just lets me know God knows what he's talking about. I don't have to try to stop it from happening. I just need to be faithful to honor God and tell others about Christ and to contribute to the Great Commission, both with my time and my treasure. That is what God's called me to do. Somewhere in the middle of the tribulation at the three-and-a-half-year mark, Antichrist makes some kind of treaty with Israel. Finally, there's peace in Israel. Finally, one of these treaties is the one. We've heard all about treaties with Israel over the decades. This is supposed to be the one. And yet... At that halfway point in the tribulation, uh, Antichrist breaks the treaty 
and demands that the world worship him and give him all the power. The Bible refers to this as the abomination of desolation. Uh, Certainly, it may be very well that Antichrist sets himself up as a God figure, much like the Roman emperor did during the first Roman Empire. And it may be right in the Holy of Holies, right on the Temple Mount in a rebuilt temple. That's where the original abomination of desolation occurred. Then there will be horrific persecution and slaughter of Jews and those who've come to faith in Christ during the tribulation. It'll make the Holocaust seem like just a bad rainy day. That's how bad it's going to be. Not to trivialize the Holocaust that was horrific, but we need to be reminded when we read these things and we say, I don't think, how could that happen? And you look at history and you say, oh yeah, it could happen. It has happened and it's going to be a time, like Jesus said, that the world's never seen before and will never see since. The Bible talks about this world system that's coming as Babylon the Great. We read that in Revelation 17. Babylon is the symbolic name for Antichrist's worldwide political, economic, and religious kingdom. It's called Babylon the Great because it's, it's also called the mother of harlots because worshiping false idols, worshiping false gods is likened to prostitution or harlotry in the Bible. And where did all of that start? At the Tower of Babel. So where we get that connection with Babylon. Remember at the Tower of Babel, God had said, be fruitful, multiply, take dominion over the earth. And man said, no, we're going to stick together. We don't need God. We're going to you know, glorify man through working together and building this great tower. God was not pleased or impressed with man, and he scattered them by confusing their languages, which accounts for why we have nations and different foreign languages today. Babylon is also pictured as a woman riding on a beast in Revelation 17. She's wearing uh, scarlet, and she's dripping in blood from the, just the death of all the martyrs. It's a horrific picture. Don't read Revelation before bed. It's, it's a terrible picture of the end times. If you're going to read it before bed, just read to the end because it gets good you know, it gets better at the end when Jesus comes on a white horse and there's a new heavens and earth and new Jerusalem. Uh, but it can get pretty dark and scary. Uh, some of you kind of like that kind of stuff. You know, you, you watch the dark movies and you like the whodunits. And that stuff keeps me up at night, i got to be honest. Now, here's something that I really had to debate whether or not I wanted to say from the pulpit because I knew when I'm going through the end times, I had to be careful not to get too into all the conspiracy theories and this represents this and this nation is this. That's okay to do. Just don't get so sidetracked in that that you lose sight of what we're supposed to be doing now as Christians. So a good evangelical man, just, just to give you an example, good evangelical, good writer, good Christian man, Hal Lindsey. Are you familiar with Hal Lindsey? He wrote Late Great Planet Earth. 
he said that in 1948, when the Jews came back to Israel, that started the eschatological end times clock. And he said, because Jesus said that this generation shall not pass before all these things are fulfilled, he said that the generation around during 1948 would see Jesus come back. Well, a generation biblically is about 40 years, so for a while he was writing that 1988, that, you know, something's going to happen by 1988. Well, here we are in 2014, and he's a good guy, and he's retracted his statements, you know, but that's what happens when you get, you know, almost too caught up in trying to predict. And what did Jesus tell us? That, That day is not for us to know. Jesus and his humanity... He had the prerogative to know the date, but the Trinity decided that Jesus and his humanity would not know the date and would not be able to tell us the exact date of his return. Why? He doesn't tell us, but clearly we we could presume that what would people do if we knew the exact date? You know, you've all had a term paper due at some time in your life, and you waited till the night before. And you learned your lesson, and then you did it again. So you didn't learn your lesson. It's just the way that we are. You know, when you, when you go out, and if your kids are old enough to watch themselves, you don't tell them when you're coming home. You have to surprise them. You come home an hour early because you love your kids and trust them, but like Ronald Reagan, you trust but verify, right? You trust but verify. So, because we understand the sin nature and Jesus understood we would still be left with a sin nature, and I think if we knew the date of his return, we would procrastinate on the Great Commission, evangelism, and, um, you know, party until the day before, so to speak. But I thought I would mention this because it's good to be able to see that the things that God has revealed in His Word are happening, and not just in a vague, general way, but pretty specific. We talked about how Daniel's prophecy said that a revived Roman Empire would be very instrumental at the end times. We talked about how the European Union, that old Roman Empire, has reformed. They have one currency Maybe the euro is moving towards the one world currency everyone will have to use to buy, sell, and trade. I don't know. It might be something else. But what was fascinating to me was that, would you believe the European Union originally um, commissioned an artist to create some kind of symbol of what would be the picture of the European Union? You can go online and see this. The original picture, I don't know how to like cut and paste into PowerPoint. I'm sure somebody could help me with that but was a poster of the Tower of Babel and all the members of the European Union down there in hard hats with their, with their hammers and their sickles, you know. And uh, that, was, that was the picture of the European Union. The one thing in the Bible that represents we don't need God, we'll do it ourselves. Could you believe they would pick such a symbol? And what's the end times world system called? Babylon. The great. Well, there's enough Christians in Europe who are quite offended with this that they removed the poster and they chose another symbol to represent the European Union. I kid you not, the current symbol to represent the European Union is a woman riding on a beast. 
There's a statue of a woman riding on a beast outside the uh, headquarters of the European Union in Brussels. And all of the member nations have this statue in their, their parliament. Uh, the one in Spain is a real avant-garde-looking woman on a, a beast, of course, you know. And, and they all look a little different, but you're like, really? You're just going to thumb your nose at God and just rip it right out of the pages of Scripture and say, yeah, we're going to do it anyways. Well, maybe they don't know. Maybe their hearts are hard and they're just blind. They say that what that symbolizes is in Greek mythology, there was a woman named Europa, which is where we get the word Europe. And according to Greek mythology, she rode on this beast. And the beast dove into the sea. And at the bottom of the sea, the beast ravaged the woman. And out came all these children as islands. And those are all the, the nations of uh, the Roman Empire. And in fact, you see imagery in Revelation referring to those nations as islands. The beast is Zeus, the Greek god of mythology, the Greek father god of mythology. Now hold on to that for a second because we're going to go on and talk about this abomination of desolation because that is the event Jesus said when that happens, then three and a half years, the second coming of Christ happens. All right? The, the end is close. So what is this abomination of desolation? It was prefigured in 168 B.C. You can read all about this in the book of Daniel, chapter 11, about a northern kingdom called the Seleucids. We don't know much about this in the church because 168 B.C. is when? It's between when the book of Malachi ends the Old Testament and the New Testament starts. We have plenty of historical records. We have the apocryphal books from the Catholic Bible, like the book of Maccabees, that tells us about these events. So there's this northern kingdom in Syria. Gee, aren't they in the news a lot lately? Yeah. And the uh, southern kingdom, the Ptolemies in Egypt. Gee, are they not in the news a lot? Remember the, the what was it called, the Arab Spring that never happened? Um, the Seleucid king was named Antiochus. There was a whole line of Antiochuses. And he's Antiochus IV. He called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which was really a title of deity. Kind of funny, his opponents nicknamed him Antiochus Epimenes, which means madman. Epiphanes means, yeah, well, you know what Epiphany means. Um, so he took on this title of deity, he went down and he conquered the Ptolemies, and on his way back north, he stopped in Israel under the flag of peace and on the Sabbath overthrew Jerusalem, got rid of all the sacrifices, set up an image of Zeus in the Holy of Holies, slaughtered a pig, and spread the blood all over the Holy of Holies. That was called the abomination of desolation. It was predicted by Daniel hundreds of years earlier. It happened, but that is not the abomination of desolations. The one that happens during the tribulation will be just like that. Just like that. So here we have this revived Roman Empire. Antichrist will come from that revived Roman Empire 
and somehow he will be let into Jerusalem and he will desecrate the temple. So a temple has to be rebuilt. And we wouldn't be surprised if they put the uh, woman riding on a beast right in the middle of the temple. The beast represents Zeus. Zeus, you know, so history repeats itself. Now, is that the way it's all going to go down? I thought I would just let you know it's quite plausible. What that does for me, and I hope it does for you too, is read your Bible with renewed faith and trust like, wow, I knew God knew everything, and I know the future's in His hands, uh, but wow, really? Well, we say we believe it because we teach in God's omniscience and His omnipotence, And yet, in His kindness and graciousness and mercy to us, He gives us evidence here on earth to say, oh yes, these aren't just words we throw around in our systematic theology class. God is that powerful. That ought to give you great faith. During the tribulation, though, there will be evangelism going on. Even though the church will be removed, who will do the evangelizing? 144,000 Jews come to saving faith. That'll be amazing. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. And they're going to evangelize the world with the gospel. Imagine that. Only God could pull off something like that. Jews evangelizing the world for Jesus. Many Gentiles will come to saving faith and they'll join the evangelistic efforts. Revelation also tells us in chapter 11, there will be two witnesses God sends with the power to perform great signs and wonders. Imagine if you could go out witnessing and perform great signs and wonders like the apostles. Well, apparently these guys' power will, will dwarf that of the apostles. At some time they will be killed on national TV probably because the Bible says everybody will see it. They'll lie dead in the streets for a while, but they'll come back to life. And when Revelation was penned, I wonder how saints for 2,000 years were wondering, how is it that everybody's going to know this? Well, here we are with CNN and satellite news and smartphones. Everyone's going to be able to see this happen. Finally, an angel is going to preach the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation. So there will be one last mass evangelistic event. An angel of the Lord will come and spread the gospel throughout the world. God is so merciful. You know, one last chance, one last chance, one last chance. During the last three and a half years, though, the seven bold judgments will be released. And I have a list there of, of what those look like. Those who buy and sell with the mark of the beast will get some kind of plague. They'll have these horrible sores. The Bible says they'll blaspheme the name of God. Instead of repenting, they'll just get angry at God. The seas turn to blood and the fish die, much like during uh, uh, Israel and Egypt, much during the ten plagues. The rivers and springs turn to blood. The sun's heat intensifies, a scorching heat that there's just no escape from. Imagine, you know, Phoenix in the middle of the summer with no shade or air conditioning. I don't know, something like that. Um, Yet, then followed up with darkness, just darkness falling over the land. 
I wonder if the scorching heat will still happen during the darkness, that there won't be any, any relief. Uh, the river Euphrates, which runs north-south between the Middle East and Israel, dries up in order for the armies from the east to be able to move towards Jerusalem for that final battle of Armageddon. And then finally, a worldwide earthquake uh, like we've never seen before on a magnitude probably never recorded, and 100-pound hailstones fall. If you don't know that you're in the end times, then you must be asleep or, or drugged, which I'm sure many people will turn to drugs to escape the, the horrendous tribulation. All of this the Bible refers to as the day of the Lord. You know those minor prophets you don't read much in the Old Testament? Joel and um, Zephaniah. They talk about the day of the Lord all the time. And let me read uh, our passage this morning. And now we only need about five minutes to finish up. Everything is set, and then Jesus is going to come back. Most of what he taught was, what is it going to look like right before I come back? Once he comes back, he defeats all his enemies, and we reign for a thousand years with him. Jesus says, But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. This is clearly a reference to the day of the Lord. His Jewish listeners, those four men, would know exactly what Jesus was talking about. He's pulling Scripture right out of the Old Testament. He doesn't need to explain what the day of the Lord is to the Jews. They've all been waiting for it their whole life. It's the day that Messiah comes and God pours out His wrath on the unbelieving nations and pours out blessing on the nation Israel. It's that day when finally, all that how long, Lord, how long? How long will the wicked prosper? How long? That's the day that God says enough is enough. Now it's God's turn. It will be an unmistakable day. It will be a day like none other that history's ever seen. It will be terrible for those who don't know the Lord and wondrous for those who do. In fact, Matthew records in his version of the Olivet Discourse that it will be so terrible for those who don't know the Lord, many will just die from a heart attack. It says they will uh, be faint of heart, but the word in the Greek is really your heart stopping. You know, it's like, uh uh-oh, here, here he is. And they, they know what they have coming. And yet refuse to put their faith in him. Let's read some of these day of the Lord passages. There's so many we could read. Let me just give you a sampling. Zephaniah 1.15, A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Joel chapter 2, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Do you see a theme? The sun not giving its light or the moon not giving its light. Remember God said in Jeremiah, as long as you wake up and the sun is shining and there's day and night, you know that God's promises 
uh, are you can count on them. And here we have the day of the Lord when there's cosmic disturbances such as the world's never seen, and you know something ain't right. Something's up. Something big's about to happen. By this time, things have been so terrible on earth that this is just the culminating event of all of the great tribulation. Isaiah thirteen nine. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation, and He will exterminate its sinners from it, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. Faith in Christ means humbling yourself before God. God will not stand for the arrogant and the haughty and the proud who thumb their nose at God and set themselves up as their own gods. The day of the Lord is a, always includes these four elements. It's a time when Yahweh's righteousness is demonstrated through judgment. Finally, judgment. Jesus came at His first coming. Not many people noticed. A few shepherds, some wise men, His parents, cousins, or His, his, uh, his aunt, um, a prophet or two. Yet, the second time he comes, there will be no doubt. The whole world will know. Remember, he says, if people say, there he is, or I'm Jesus, don't listen to them. You'll know when the real Jesus comes, if you're still here during the tribulation. It will also be a time of blessing for the righteous. We read in in, uh, Matthew 24 that he'll separate the sheep from the goat. The the true believers who are here during the tribulation, he'll set aside the goats, the unrighteous, will be removed from the earth and he'll reign for a thousand years with believers and then he'll gather all the believers, all the elect, to come reign with him for a thousand years. Hopefully that'll be you and me. What else happens? Cosmic disturbances and other great signs like the world's never seen. Again, so there's no doubt that Jesus is coming. Yahweh's faithfulness to Israel is demonstrated. We reiterate that the church has not replaced Israel. The day of the Lord will be a time when all of those promises to Israel get fulfilled. They will return to the land. The remnant will return to the land. He'll restore the kingdom. The temple will be glorious. The Jews will have a very prominent role in the millennial kingdom. Finally, imminency. The day of the Lord is always described as near at hand, meaning it could come any second. Be ready. In fact, if we continue reading the end of Mark 13, Jesus says, You will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. What will that look like? I don't know. The psalmist talks about the clouds as God's chariot. Will He literally be on clouds? Revelation says he comes on a white horse. Is it a literal white horse? I, I don't know. I think it is. I think the first time he came, he came humble on a donkey, and the second time he'll be glorious on a white horse. 
He will send forth the angels. They'll gather the elect from the four winds, so that's all over earth, and from the farthest end of heaven, the church that's been raptured up will come back to earth to reign with Christ for a thousand years. There will be no doubt. It'll be the most spectacular event in human history. Babylon will be defeated. The beast and the false prophet will be cast into the lake of fire. Satan will be bound for a thousand years. Can you imagine a thousand years with no Satan, no demonic influence on earth? It's going to be glorious. Absolutely glorious. The angels gather the elect. The sheep and goats are separated and believers reign with Christ for a thousand years. Jesus reigns on David's throne in Jerusalem. Literally, that'll be the seat of his kingdom. Israel, that tiny little piece of land, has had more history happen there than anywhere else on this earth. Everybody wants that little piece of land. It's been fought over. More blood has been shed over that little piece of land. And you realize it's got to play a prominent role in the end of times. When will it happen? Okay, I'm going to set a date. No, I'm not going to set a date. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. It's a parable. You know when summer's coming. In Tehachapi, everything turns green for two weeks and then brown. <laughs> we get our, our two weeks of spring, and then summer is here. And maybe one more snow. But even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So, when the abomination of desolation happens and it's obvious we're in the tribulation, that's when he's saying that's like the green uh, leaves on the fig tree. It's ready. It's soon. It's going to happen. Real soon. And we know it'll take three and a half years from Daniel's prophecy. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Do you know this heaven and earth after the thousand years will be destroyed and rebuilt perfectly? All those trying to save the planet? Certainly we should be good stewards, but it's, uh, it's recyclable. The whole, <laughs> the whole thing is... Yeah... And again, Jesus says, Of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, not even the Son knows, but only the Father. So then how ought we to live? Take heed, keep on the alert, Jesus says, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey who, upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Jesus is the owner of the house, were the slaves, were good slaves though, because we've got a good master. It's good to be a slave to Jesus. Either you're a slave to your own sin or you're a slave to Jesus. Choose who you want to be a slave to. Pick, pick Jesus. He's much better master than your own sin nature. Be on the alert. He's coming back, but he hasn't told us exactly when. So the picture here is of the owner of the house coming back and heaven forbid the slaves not be ready. The house is a mess or a party's going on or whatever, right? 
heaven forbid Jesus would come back and find us in that condition. So we live on the alert, not panicking, not riddled with anxiety. Paul told the believers in Thessalonica, some had quit their job, sold everything to go out evangelizing, and then expected the church to feed them and buy them the things that they need. And and Paul said, if a man doesn't work, he shall not eat. So we live in this world, but we're not of this world. We anxiously await Christ's return, but we're diligent to live life. We don't make life all about this world, but we earn money and we contribute to, to the works of God and the Great Commission, and we save for retirement because He may not come back before we die. And you you, you got to be ready for retirement. You need something to live off of when you're no longer able to work. So we, we do all those things that is good and proper for Christians to do. You have to live life in balance. We're slaves at the house, but be ready for the return of the master. Be on the alert. You do not know when the master of the house is coming. He may come in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. And we'll end there. Let me pray for all of us. Father God, thank you for giving us the end of the story. So we need not be afraid. We need not worry. We need not speculate. You've laid it all out for us. Everything we need to know. The parts we don't need to know, you've kept hidden from us for our own good and for your own purposes. We trust you, Lord. Help us to trust you more and more every day. And may we be found diligent when you return. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless all of you. And those staying for the new members' lunch, we'll see you in the chapel.